line in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus tells us to pray, hallowed be your name. And I was suggesting yesterday that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, you may ask the question, are we, are we meant to recite the Lord's Prayer? Well, I think it's a good idea, but I think we should do it not at the end of our prayer times, but at the beginning. Very often I think you have a prayer time and you end with the Lord's Prayer. Well, I think a much better thing to do is to begin with the Lord's Prayer, because as you're beginning to pray, if you begin with the Lord's Prayer, then as you're getting going in your prayer, you're reminding yourself of the, the six or seven themes that you ought to be pursuing in all of your praying. In all of your praying, you are pursuing these particular matters that Jesus is putting to us in that one prayer. So it's good to be to begin with the Lord's Prayer, if you use it that way, as, as I do. Never used to, but I've, I've come to do so. Um, that's how we should use it. We should know it by heart. Uh, one reason why we should recite it a lot is so that our children and our churches know it by heart. And then they've got a kind of walking theology in their head if, if they know the Lord's Prayer in that way. I also think we should sing it a lot. If you, go, if you, type, if you type into Google, singing the Lord's Prayer, you'll find the internet will provide you with half a dozen different ways of singing it, including some for children. And uh, it's a good idea to have musical versions of the Lord's Prayer as well, and you might teach your children to sing one of the children's versions of the Lord's Prayer. So we're still pursuing that. I was looking especially at the bits and pieces that arise from John's Gospel. It's John who especially emphasizes this theme. He tells us that we believe in the name of Jesus, we are kept in the name of Jesus. It's Jesus' name that dwells among us. It's Jesus' name that's the means of power, and I'm still continuing that. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. And you remember how the Lord said that again on that last Thursday. He, again, I'm just setting my watch. On that last Thursday, he told us, you've not prayed before, in the name of Jesus, but from now on you should be praying in my name, said Jesus. That's not in the Lord's Prayer. People are sometimes a little bit puzzled and worried that the Lord's Prayer doesn't tell us to pray in the name of Jesus. Well, I don't think you should be very worried about it. It's just that that was best left a bit nearer to the death and resurrection of Jesus that the Lord's Prayer is given right early in the ministry of Jesus. And then again, in Luke's Gospel, as he's travelling towards Jerusalem. But at the right time for Jesus to really tell you about the power of the Spirit and praying in Jesus' name and the, the greater level of fellowship that you'll have is that last occasion. So in the time on that Thursday evening where Jesus is about to, to leave them forever, he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. When I go away, you won't have less of me, you will have more of me. I'll send the Spirit and you'll have more closer fellowship with me than you've ever had before. Little while, little while I'm going away, you won't see me, then you'll see me again. And I think he's referring to the Holy Spirit. You'll see me by the Spirit and I'll lead you into all of the truth and I'll convict the whole world of sin and of judgment through you. When the Spirit comes upon you, he'll convict the world of sin says Jesus. So it's at that time that he says, from now on, you've not known much about praying in my name, but from now on, you should pray in my name. John 16, verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, by which he means nothing of the things that they're worried about. Truly, I say, whatever you ask of the Father in my name going to the Lord saying, well, Lord, I'm, I'm praying to you because of what you've done in Jesus. I'm praying because Jesus died upon the cross and you've put everything you want to give me in the person of Jesus. When you come in the name of Jesus, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name, but now ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So we pray in the name of Jesus, which means praying in the light of who Jesus is, in the light of, of what Jesus has done, we learn to pray in the name of Jesus. I don't know how you talk to God when you pray, but I can tell you that personally, I often say to the Lord, Lord, I'm not praying in my name. I'm not asking you to do this for me. I'm coming to the name of Jesus. I often like to talk to the Lord in that way. You tell the Lord that you're coming to him in the name of Jesus. And I'm reading at the moment Psalm 25. Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name... For your name's sake, O Yahweh, 
pardon my guilt because it is great. Here's a man who feels so sinful, so bad, but he comes to the Lord as Yahweh, as the one who saves by the blood of the Lamb, the Exodus God, and he says, for your name's sake, no, it's not, it's not for me because of what you're doing, it's because of your plan of salvation, you promised that you save people, so I'm asking you to be yourself. For your name's sake, oh Yahweh, pardon my guilt. So we pray in the name of the Lord. And I've already said to you that we baptise in the name of the Lord, which means that we expect people to be blessed. It's only, it's only a symbol, it's not that there's any magic in the water, but baptism is a kind of expression of faith. I think if you think of it that way, you'll understand baptism a bit more. Baptism is an expression of faith. You are expressing your faith. Remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, Peter Philip, preaches the gospel to him, and the man says, oh yeah, yeah, I believe believe this. I I, want to tell everybody I believe. What is to stop me being baptized? He's he's about to express his faith. And Philip says, yeah, it's all right. On the day of Pentecost, when they say, well, yeah, you've convicted us, we believe, we shouldn't have done that, and they're crying out in faith. They, They know that what Peter is saying is true, but they ask the question, what shall we do? Now, now that we've, we've come to believe this message of your preaching, what shall we do? And Peter says, I'll tell you what to do, get baptised, express your faith, put your faith in something visible, call upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord will do two things to you. Number one, he'll forgive you your sins. It doesn't mean you'll be justified, it means you'll feel forgiven, you'll, you'll feel the power. Forgiveness is, a, is an experiential relationship. You'll feel forgiven, and God will give you the Spirit just as he has given the the 120, the Spirit. And so, baptism is an expression of faith. You're calling upon the name of the Lord in water baptism. Not that the water does anything, it's just an occasion in which you're calling upon the Lord in faith. Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan of the 17th century, regarded baptism as a form of prayer. He said, baptism is a prayer. And I think he's right, and I think that's the meaning of 1 Peter chapter 3.21. Baptism now saves us, says 1 Peter 3.21. And then he tells us how baptism can't save us, and how it can. Baptism now saves us, not, not as a cleansing of the flesh. It's not that it regenerates you or washes your sinfulness away. It's not that. But it is an appeal, says my ESV. But the Greek word could be translated prayer. It is a prayer to God for a clear conscience through the fact that Jesus has died and been raised from the dead. Baptism is believing God, praying, it's saying to God, Lord God, I'm saved, I'm believing you, now I want you to give me your Holy, your Holy Spirit in power and authority. It's not, it's not something which cleanses the sinful nature. It's, it's, it's calling upon the Lord to give you his spirit and to give you a sense that your sins are forgiven and prepare you for the future as a Christian. It rescues you and helps you in that way. Not that the water does anything, no, no magic in the water. But that's why we baptise in the name of the Lord. We, we say God has told us to do this, to express faith and call upon God. And we're looking for God to, to move in power. Not, not any guarantee, it's not automatic, it's not something which switches on the Spirit in any automatic way, but it's an expression of faith and God may indeed bless anything which is expressing case. So we do everything in the name of the Lord. We preach in the name of the Lord. We pray in the name of the Lord. We baptise in the name of the Lord. We, we witness in the name of the Lord. We pray for the sick in the name of the Lord. We expect miracles in the name of the Lord. It's all looking to what God is. We look to God. We look to his character. And so what we are expecting and hoping and believing will happen is, is that God will get glory to his name. The people will see what's going on in the church of Jesus Christ and they'll honour and they'll glorify God. They'll say, well, when we see these people, this is God. Can't be anybody, can't be them, they, they're nobodies. But this is God and they glorify the name of the Lord. And this is how we pray. We, this is to be the spirit of prayer. This is to be the, the ethos that flows through our praying our desire that God will get glory and honour through our praying and all that we do for him. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I've quoted already, says, whatever you do, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of the Lord. And the Psalms are always praying this way. I'm just uh, looking up Psalm 
79, where the man prays, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Help us for the glory of your name. Your name be glorified. Your name be honoured because you're helping us in such a way. Help us for the glory of your name. Deliver us for your name's sake. Deliver us that you get glory and honour because you have delivered us. And you remember Psalm 115, I think it is, not unto us, not unto us, but unto your name be the glory. We, we don't even want this glory directly, but we'll get it as long as God gets it first. We give God the glory, God will glorify us. We give, if, if we get him a good name, he'll give us a great name. It might be, maybe if I've got time, we'll come back to that. Our, our name is also written in the book of life. We also will get a name. If we live for God's name, he will give us a name. That's part of the teaching of Scripture. And so we fear dishonouring God's name. The Bible talks a lot about the fear of the Lord. I don't know whether you ever think about that. When we are to live in the fear of God, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord, working out our salvation with fear, and trembling, because God is at work in us. I don't know whether you ever ask the question, what is it that we are afraid of? When we are to live in the fear of God, what exactly is it that we are afraid of? Well, it's not that we're afraid of hell. A Christian should never be frightened that he's going to hell. We are rescued from that sort of condemnation forever. That sort of fear should never cross your mind you should know that when you believe in Jesus, you are safe forever. You do not need the slightest fear at all that you will lose your salvation or go to hell or anything like that. That is not what we are afraid of. No, the fear of the Lord is surely a fear that we won't get all the blessing that we ought to get, a fear that we might dishonor God's name, a fear that we might let him down and lose something of the blessing that he wants to give us. And these people in the Bible, they, they pray in the fear of the Lord. It's not that they're afraid of hell or anything like that, but they fear letting God down. They fear dishonouring God's name. And if you look through the various references, I've got so many references here, I don't want to bore you with reading them all, but if you fear dishonouring God's name, that, that's the fear of the Lord. Don't, don't want to let God down. Don't let God be slandered. Don't let the name of the Lord be disgraced through you. That's the fear, part of the fear of the Lord. And so we seek God's glory. Do you do that? You literally seek God's glory. Do you, try, do you seek to persuade people and show people how glorious God is? It's not that you want any kind of glory for yourself, but you want glory for God. You want God to be honoured and glorified. Not unto us, O Lord, Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where's their God? I look at these Christians, I say, well, what's not very special about them? Why should the nations be, as it were, dishonouring God when they look at us? We, we don't want the glory, says, says the psalm. Not unto us, not unto us, but unto your name give glory. I read it again. For the sake of your steadfastness, your love, your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. You who fear the Lord, Psalm 115, verse 11. You who fear the Lord, trust in him. He is their help and their shield. So I'm asking you, do you live for the glory of God? And part of this is learning to praise God. We are to learn to praise God. You may say, why, why does God want us to praise him so much? I mean, he tells us that we shouldn't be seeking praise. So if we are not seeking praise, well then why, why should he be seeking praise? Well, the answer is that he deserves it and we don't. When we praise him, we're just telling the truth. When we praise ourselves, we're only partially telling the truth. We're covering up all of our sins and weaknesses. We, we 
we should not be praising ourselves. Let, let God praise us one day. But, uh, but when we praise God, we're, we're not saying anything that's not true. We're just saying the way things are. When we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, you are so great, you are so wise, you're so full of mercy and so tenderness, and we, we, as it were, worshipping him and adoring him, all we're doing is getting ourselves to see the truth. All we're doing is getting ourselves to see, to see the way things are. This is what God is. And so the Bible calls upon us to be, to be praising God and worshipping the Lord. Um, I'm about to read Nehemiah. When the people of Israel are restored and go back to the land of Jerusalem, only, only about five miles across, this little country which is being restored, and they go back to the city of Jerusalem and start building the walls. One of the things that Ezra and Nehemiah are wanting to restore is worship and praise. And we read in Nehemiah that he, tell, he calls upon all the people and he says, Stand up, stand up, and bless Yahweh, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. And he says, Blessed be your glorious name. Or the, the Hebrew says, The name of your glory. Blessed be the name of your glory, the, the expression of your glory. And he calls upon the whole, the whole people, Stand up and bless the Lord your God. This glorious name, which is ab- exalted above all blessing and above all praise. Part of what we pray when we pray, hallowed be your name, is that we learn to praise God and worship God. You do that? Sometimes I think in our praying we should do nothing else. I don't know how you pray. I think most of us have a little sort of prayer routine. You, maybe you praise the Lord and confess your sins and ask for a few things. I think sometimes you shouldn't even get beyond the praise. That's spend the whole time praising him. You spend half an hour in the morning praying, or an hour or whatever. Let's spend the whole time praising him, thanking him, going over what he's done. Never mind, you leave your request for some other time. Just praise him, worship him. And when you do that, you're, you're seeing things as they are. It's reality when you're praising God, because that's the way God is. When you see his wisdom, his glory, his love, his mercy, and even things like his anger, his jealousy, his judgment, his wrath, even those things. When you worship the Lord for being what he is, you're glorifying his name the glory of his name. And that's what we are praying for when we pray your name, hallowed be your name. I said to you earlier, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're also committing ourselves to a certain kind of lifestyle. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we don't mean that other people hallowed your name, we begin with ourselves. We, we ourselves have to begin day by day by day. We have times when we do nothing but praise God. It'll do something to you. It'll change your life. It'll change your character. Even your face might begin to shine. When you're praising God, even your face looks different. Just, just look in the mirror, you see what I mean. I was preaching in Ethiopia some years ago. I told you the story. I forget where I tell my stories. I was preaching in Ethiopia a few years ago and uh, preaching upon the cross. And there was a little girl there. I told you about one little girl. Here's another one. There's some little girl there. When the meeting was all over, and I finished, I preached for an hour on the cross, and someone translated me into Amharic, and the congregation was just sitting there, we'd finished. There's a little girl sitting on the front row, and she was just singing a song. And a little song, it's in in Amharic, I suppose it's about the cross, but I couldn't follow it. And then the people around her began to sing with her as well. The group around her joined in with the singer's little girl. And the circle that's singing got bigger and bigger and bigger until finally quite a few people in the front were singing this little song with this little girl. Everybody else was quiet. So the little girl stood up and she, she got out into the front and she began leading about 500 people there. And this little girl, 9, 10, 11, began leading the whole worship. And she, she had such authority, such power. She could have been the, the archbishop. She was preaching. She was worshipping and leading that church. But the thing that I will never forget is her face was shining her face was shining you remember when Moses went inside the prayer tent outside the camp of Israel went outside the camp we had this little tent not the tabernacle but another one and he would spend time with God just worshipping praising seeking God when he came out his face was shining his face was shining I have a little booklet at home once belonged to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones I have Lloyd-Jones copy of a little booklet called I Met a Man with a Shining Face. It's the story of a 
a young preacher who was a bit proud of himself, and he was sitting on the platform of preachers. But when, as he looked upon the platform, he could see one man whose face was shining. He kept on looking at him because his face was shining. And finally, the, the man with the shining face turned to him and said, young, young man, have you been baptized with the Spirit and with power? And the young man replied, I don't think I have, but if, but if it's what makes your face shine, I want it. If it's what makes your face shine, I want it. I met a man with a shining face is the title of that little booklet. When you worship God, it changes you. It can even change your face. Uh, do you know what it is? I, I, I'm scared of boasting, but I, I want to make a point. Do you know what it is to be walking down the road and someone smiles at you? And you think, oh, I wonder why they're smiling at me. Do they know me? And then you realize they're not smiling at you. You were smiling at them and they were smiling back. You were just rejoicing in God. You've, been, you've just been praying or praising the Lord. You're walking along enjoying life. People start smiling at you. And you think, well, why are those people smiling at you? They're not smiling at you. You're smiling at them. Because you've just been in the presence of God. Your very demeanor, your walk, your style, everything about you changes. Even your face begins to shine. And Nehemiah goes back to the Jerusalem and he says, stand up. You know, here we are in this little place, only a few miles across Jerusalem. The nation was almost destroyed. Let's just stand up and bless the Lord from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. It is exalted high above all blessing and praise. This is it. Hallowed be your name. You're praying that everybody might praise God, beginning with you. And you spend times where you do nothing but praise the name of the Lord. It might even improve your face. <laughs> and Isaiah says the same thing. Isaiah 59 says the same thing. He's very concerned about the glory of God and the name of God. And uh, read Isaiah. The glory of Lebanon shall come, he says. The glory of God will come and all sorts of blessings and wonderful things will happen. And it's describing salvation, how Jesus comes. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. He put on a helmet of salvation. Jesus comes like a mighty soldier, clothed with the garments of righteousness. And he wraps himself in zeal, and he deals with his enemies, and he saves his people. So shall they fear, when, when the Saviour comes, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the east, the rising of the sun, he will come. The Lord, when the Lord comes, people fear his name and they admire his glory, says Isaiah. And you remember that Moses prayed that he might see the glory of God. Remember when Moses intercedes in the days when Israel had sinned so much and he goes to intercede for them? And he prays for them. And as he, as he prays, his prayer gets higher and higher. Have you ever worked your way through Isaiah, through Exodus? So to, incidentally, the great authority on the name of the Lord is Alec Matea. And I see that his commentary on Exodus is at the back there. He's the great authority on the name of the Lord. You can go and get his Exodus book. But um, in, in Exodus chapter 32, 33, 34, Moses' prayer gets higher and higher and higher. And finally, he's got a last request. As, as you pray, you get bolder and bigger, and you, you go higher in prayer. You pray for more things. And he gets bolder and bolder and bolder as he prays. And the last thing he prays for is, Lord, please, Lord, please, show me your glory. I want to see, I want to see who you are. I want to see your glory. This is the thing that Moses wants more than anything else in the world. And it's what you should want more than anything else in the world. More important than wealth or money or pleasure or fame. To see the Lord, to dwell in the presence of God and see his glory. It's what Moses wants more than anything. And he prays, Lord, please show me your glory. And God says to him, all right, I'll, I'll show, you, show you a little bit. I will make all my goodness pass before me and I will proclaim, I will proclaim my name. Do you see the glory of God and the name of God are the same thing. I'll pass before you and I'll, I'll, I'll let you see my name and uh, I'll show you my grace. But you can't, you can't see my face. You can't fully see me. It'd kill you if, if I showed you everything about me, it would kill you. So I tell you what, 
I'll, I'll put you in this cave, this cleft of the rock, this little bit, and, and I'll, I'll flash by, and you'll, ju- you'll just see me in, in, out of the corner of your eye. You'll just see a tiny little glimpse of my glory. And we read that God passes by, and Moses is inside this cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you a bit so you can't see everything. I'll cover you with my hand, and then I'll take it away, and you'll see a little flash as I disappear into the distance. You'll see a little flash of my glory, only my face you will not see. And so God passes by, and it says, the Lord passed by and proclaims God's name. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the sovereign one, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steady love for thousands, forgiving iniquity. Moses is given a glimpse of the glory of God, just, just even visible, shining, uh, the flash of the radiating glory, flashing by, and he sees a little caught little bit of it out of the corner of his eye. And, and the name of the Lord is proclaimed to him. What an amazing experience. Do you know anything of that? Even the tiniest little shadow of that, it will change your whole life. It's what often happens when people are called. When you read the call stories of the Bible where people are called into ministry, it often begins with that. Remember Isaiah, he sees a vision of the angels worshipping the glory of God and calling out, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. And as Moses, as Isaiah sees that, it's only a vision, it's not, it's not anything external, but as he sees that vision, it immediately convicts him of sin, and he says, well, it's me, well, well, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's convicted of sin, and the, thing, the point at which he's convicted is his, is his talk, what he says, and he knows everybody else is the same. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Everybody's all the same. We've all got the same problem. And, and God says, yeah, I'm going to do something about it. Who will go for me? Who will go for me? And it's, it's, it's Isaiah's call. He says to the Lord, Lord, here am I. He doesn't say, here am I, I'll go. He says, here am I, send me. I'll, I'll go as long, as long as you're sending me. Here am I, send me. It's, it's his call. When you see the vision of the glory of God, when you get the tiny glimpse of what God is like, it totally transforms your life and God immediately puts ministry and calling upon you, things that you have to do for him. The very fact that you, you know God so much is now going to be used in ministry. And the call that comes to people often comes when they see a vision of the glory of God. Happened, happened to Moses. Moses sees some, some bush burning, radiating, shining, yet it's not consumed. It's, not, it's burning, but it's not burning. Burning, but it's not burning up. And he's a good scientist. He says, oh, you know, I'll go and investigate. I'll go and see this great sight. He casually wants to stroll into the presence of God and see what's going on. Moses, Moses. Put off your shoes from off your feet. You're standing upon holy ground. And he sees an angelic force. It's angels, actually. But he sees a representation of the glory and the greatness of God. And that's his call. That's the point where God says, now I'm sending you. When you see the glory of God, when you get hold of the character of God, it's always the beginning of some new phase in your life. And you're not ready for that new phase in your life until you do see that that glimpse of the glory of God. Happens to to, to Ezekiel. Glory of God appears to me, falls upon his face as somebody dead. Happens to John in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Happens to Peter. You remember Peter, at the time of his call to be an apostle, the story in Luke is different from the story in Matthew and Mark. In Matthew and Mark, it's, I'm making you fishes of men. Come follow me. Same, same story in the same position in Luke is a bit different. Paul goes, Paul goes fishing. He achieves nothing. Comes back, no fish at all. And Jesus says, do your fishing under me. I'll, I'll, let me tell you what to do and, and you'll catch some fish. And Peter says to him, Lord, you're just a preacher. What do preachers know about fishing? I've been fishing all night. You think you can tell me how to fish? I've been fishing all night and I caught nothing. Now, you do as I tell you, says Jesus. Cast your head over the other side. All right, Lord, if you say so. 
and he catches, he catches the biggest catch of fish he's ever had in his life. All the boats are, are, are smothered with fish. He calls upon all these workers to come and help him, and the boats are sinking. He's never had such a catch as this. You know what he says? He says, oh Lord, oh Lord, depart from me. Well, I don't think I can serve you. Depart from me. He sees something of the glory and the holiness of Jesus, but, but he, does, he doesn't encourage him very much. He, he wants to run for his life. Lord, depart from me. I'm a wicked man. I can't serve you. Mind you, the nice thing is Jesus takes not the slightest bit of notice. When you say to the Lord, Lord, there's no way in which I can serve you, I'm not worthy at all, don't be surprised if the Lord doesn't even bother answering you. He's not using you because of how good you are anyway. But if you will do your fishing under the command of Jesus, he says, you follow me, you've been a fisherman, what you've just happened with regard to fish, and you're now going to happen with regard to people, I'm going to make you a fisher of men, of people. But the point I'm making is, the vision of the glory of Jesus that makes Peter feel so sinful is his call. It's the point at which he's being called to be an apostle, a fisher of men. So it's always the same. Wherever you go, when when you find people seeing this vision of the glory of God, and the same with Saul of Tarsus. Here's Saul, he's a persecutor, he hates Christians, he's going down that road to Damascus, breathing out threats and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He's saying, when I get to Damascus, I'm going to get to that church, I'm going to kill all these people. Suddenly, suddenly, he sees something as bright as the sun, shining brighter than the sun. It blinds him, it's even damaging his eyes. He sees this amazing vision of glory. And there, there, in the middle of the glory, in the middle of the glory, there's a face. It's a person. He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And Jesus is giving the Apostle Paul a little glimpse of his glory. He's never the same again. And there are scholars who say, and I think they're right, that Paul's entire theology comes to him in seconds. Everything he ever preached comes from one little glimpse of the glory of Jesus. His doctrine of the church, his knowledge that the law is hopeless, his only hope is in this Jesus who was crucified. His entire theology comes in a flash as he sees the glory of God. And it's his call. He's never going to be the same again. This is what we pray. Lord, glorify, hallow your name. Let, let me see you. Let me see you as you are. And let everybody else see you as you are. And let me be one of the ones who participates in everybody seeing the glory of your name. Hallowed be your name. And as I was saying, if you live this way, you get a bit of the name yourself. You see, your name is written down as well. And your name is in the book of life. And if you pursue the question, what is the book of life? Uh, I would give you two answers. I haven't got time to go into the details. But I would give you two answers. Number one, it's a list of God's elect. It's a list of those who are predestined before the foundation of the world. But even more important, it's a list of the candidates for reward. In the ancient world, people would have a list of citizens. Every king would have a list of his citizens. And what they did good or bad, would be written down. Remember the story of Mordecai in the book of Esther, who did something for the king, and one night the king can't get to sleep, and he looks up his records, and looks at all of his citizens, what they've all done, and he sees that Mordecai one time did something for him. He says, what's the, what's the, has anything ever been done for this man Mordecai? No, no, your majesty. No one's ever done anything for him. Oh, I want to honour him. The list of citizens are candidates for reward, or candidates for judgment. They, know, they might, might be punished because they did something they shouldn't have done. It's the records of what the citizens do, and they are candidates for reward. If there's any such thing as being blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life, which maybe there is, it's not losing salvation, it's losing reward. And so you're, you're candidates for reward, and your name is written down, and what will happen if God honours you is you will be given a name. Remember, it happened to Jesus. Jesus obeyed the Lord. He, he, was, he was humble even to the point of death. He obeyed the Lord even to death, even to the death of a cross. Therefore, therefore, the Lord has highly exalted him and given him a name, a name above every name. And the name is your reward, your name. You have a name for having obeyed the Lord. When, when you obey God, God gives you a little bit of his name and you, and you get a name as well. You don't get the name above every name, you get a little name. And one of the stories in the book of Acts I like is the story of the demon. You know what the demon said? When somebody tried to cast out a demon, the demon answered back. 
And the demon said, I know the name of Jesus, I know the name of Paul, but who are you? What interests me in that story is not that the demon knew the name of Jesus, of course he knew the name of Jesus. What interests me in that story is he knew the name of Paul. When you said Paul, the demon said, oh, I know that man, he's got a name. God had given Paul a name. And he had power in the spiritual world because of his love of God's glory. When you live for the glory of God, God glorifies you. When you, when you live for God's honour, God honours you. When, you. when you live for the name of Jesus, God gives you a little name. Not a big one, but a little one. And in the heavenly glory, your, your name comes out. Have you noticed this, that righteous people are given a name, sometimes where sinners are not given a name? The rich man and Lazarus. What was the rich man's name? You don't know. Later on, people gave him one, Dives, but it's not original. The rich man, he's nameless. Who cares what his name is? He's nobody. He, he was some rich pagan guy. Who, who, what's his name? We don't even know. It's Lazarus whose name we know. Lazarus has a name. A name for, for, for worshipping. He's some, he's some beggar at the, at the feet of the, of the guy with the rich house. But his name is going to go on forever. We'll know the name of Lazarus forever and ever and ever. Lazarus will be fa- famous forever. The rich man, who, who cares about his name? He's nobody. God gives you a name. And people in the Bible who are honoured by God, they give a name. Remember, remember Ezra and Nehemiah? Whole chapters of names. You don't find whole chapters of names of wicked people. Their, their names are disappear. Their, their names are taken away and thrown away. They're, not, they're nothing. They're not going to be eternally rewarded. You get given a name as well. So when you pray, hallowed be your name, you're asking for the honour and the glory of God. But if you live for God in that way, one day you will get a name as well. And, and your name will be honoured. And Jesus will know you by name. He'll, he'll give you a name, says the book of Revelation. You, you'll have a bit of honour and glory. He will glorify you. He will give you honour. And it will go on forever. Imagine, imagine Jesus saying to you before the entire population of the universe, before all your friends and your relatives and your family and the angels and the whole world there is watching and he says to you, well done, well done. Imagine Jesus saying well done to you before the entire universe. Could there be anything more honouring than that? And that will last forever and ever and ever. You will be known forever as the person to whom Jesus said well done. You want glory, that's better than being on TV. That's better than that, someone having a right of writing a book about you. That Jesus should say to you, well done, and he addresses you by name, and he gives you a name for having honoured him, and it lasts forever and ever and ever. And you have a name, not the name, but a name, forever and ever and ever. And so the name of the Lord is going to be honoured, it's going to be known everywhere. And the Bible says the glory of God is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Have you ever seen any sea with no water on top? Have you ever seen a sea and there's no water there? No, no, it's impossible. The sea, the water is everywhere. Where the sea is, there is the water. And the glory of God will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. Nations, Psalm 102 verse 15, nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear his glory. That's going to happen. The, the very nations, and I don't believe it's after the second coming, I believe it's before the second coming. The earth will be filled with the glory of God. All nations will turn to Jesus and God's name will be glorified so much. That's what we're praying for. Over the course of Christian history, we've tended to get very negative and gloomy about how successful the gospel is going to be. It all happened after 1789, the French Revolution, 1789, and the whole of Europe was going through these political upheavals. The Reform Bill of 1830. Women were given the vote. They really thought that was the end of the world. Roman Catholics were allowed to come into power. Atheists could be in Parliament. Napoleon was marching all over the place. Battle of Waterloo. And people thought the end of the world was coming. And they were not expecting any kind of evangelism. They were just expecting that the world would end and any kind of glory would be after Jesus came. And Christians became very negative and and pathetically unbelieving in terms of what God would do. It's about time we got rid of all of that. 
It's about time he got rid of all of that. The promise of God is go make disciples of all nations. Not go make a few disciples in one or two nations, but go make disciples of all nations. What percentage of the world, I ask myself the question, what percentage of the world is, is Christian today? I have no idea, but I think about 5% would call themselves Bible-believing. And even they're not all saved. What percentage of the world is, is saved? Well, less than 5%. To me, that's pathetic. Do you think the glory of God comes when 5% are maybe, if you're lucky, believing in Jesus? Surely there's more of Jesus to be done for Jesus to be done than that. And in the book of Revelation, haven't you noticed that at every point Satan is defeated? When Jesus is, is about to be born and Satan is trying to swallow up the woman who's giving birth to the child, Satan goes after that woman to stop the child being born, but he can't do it. When the child is born and Satan goes after him, remember the story of Herod and the slaughter of the infants, and Satan goes after the child just been born. The child is ca- ca- caught up in the ascension and Satan can't, can't get at him. And when the church, the only thing that's left is the church. And so, so Satan begins to persecute the church. And the church goes into the wilderness and she's protected by God. When Satan tries to stop Jesus being born, he's defeated. When Jesus is born and Satan tries to kill him, he's defeated. When Jesus disappears in the, resur- in the ascension and he persecutes the church, he's defeated. And finally he'll be defeated altogether, cast into the lake of fire. I ask a question, will Jesus win or will Satan win in the evangelization of the world? Don't tell me that Satan's going to win that battle. Jesus will win every battle. Satan is defeated. He rides forth on a, on a military horse, a white horse, a stallion, a military, a military a horse, not, not some donkey as, as in Jerusalem in his lifetime, but upon a great white stallion with a sword of the word of God going out of his mouth, conquering and planning to do some more conquering. Conquering and to conquer. He's already conquered, he's conquering again, and he's going to do some more. Conquering and to conquer. Do you think Jesus is going to be defeated? No, no, no. The earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. It's all over the Bible. God's given apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers to to build up the church until we all come, until we all come to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. Do you think we're we're there yet? And do you remember how Romans argues it in terms of the conversion of Israel? that all nations will come in, and when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, even Israel will want what all the others have got. And so, and in that manner, and in the manner of all the other nations being saved, and so all Israel will be saved. And what will that lead to? If when Israel fell out, it, left, it led to worldwide blessing, what will, it, what will be the blessing when it comes back in again? If, if Israel's failure led to worldwide evangelism, what will Israel's conversion lead to? It will be life from the dead. Romans 11, 12, Romans 11, 15. What a life from the dead, what does it mean? I would say, at the very least, it means worldwide revival. All nations coming in. The earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Psalm 102, verse 15. Nations will fear the name of Yahweh and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. This is part of what we're looking for. We're not just gloomy people. We're expecting all nations to be being reached. And every single, I would suggest to you, you can think about it, but every single thing that's happening is part of it. It's not Mr. Obama who's the head of the nations, it's Jesus. And if Muslims are invading our Western countries, it's not the devil who's winning, it's Jesus who's doing something a bit surprising. We used to try to get into their countries, now they come into our countries. We, we wanted our missionaries to get in there. We never could do it. Now you don't have to. They came to us. It's much cheaper on the airfares. <laughs> you, you want to win Muslims to, the, Muslims to the Lord, but do it all around you. I was in Sweden a few years ago. I asked the pastor there, is there anybody around here that nobody wants? Anybody that you, you, when you're wanting to win people, you find that no, what nobody else wants. Oh yes, said the pastor, there's that kind of Muslim compound down the road where the government sent all these new Muslim immigrants. Why don't you target them, I said to him. Oh yeah, maybe I'll try. I was back there one year later. We baptized nine Iranians who'd come to faith in Jesus. And, today, and I went there again the next year. Now, now they sing songs in, in Punjab or some language that I don't even understand. The Muslims are coming here to be saved. Yeah, the, the king of the universe is not some politician somewhere. 
every single thing that ever happens in the history of our world is happening for the sake of the gospel. It is Jesus who's the head over all things for his body, the church, or I could say for the sake of his name. Jesus is the head over all things for the sake of his name, for the sake of his glory. Hallowed be your name. The very next line has to be, has to be, your kingdom come. The the two things are are, are the same. One generates the other. When you've said, hallowed be your name, the next thing you've got to say is, your kingdom come, your kingdom. Be the king of the whole, of all of the nations of the world. It's It's the next line that has to be there. Jesus is glorifying his name. And the earth will be filled with the glory of God, which is the same as the name of God, with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So my theme then is prayer, and I'm asking you, is this the spirit that fills your prayer life? How much time do you pray? The archangel Gabriel came down with his stopwatch and was timing you as you pray. How much will he clock up? I don't think that time is everything, but it's not nothing either. You've got to spend time in seeking God. Even these conferences, one thing I don't like about conferences, that is there's hardly time to pray. And you have your first session at nine, you get up at seven, you have your first, first conference, you finish at ten, when do you, when do you pray? You be careful even about those things. Find time to pray. I often find when I'm preparing a sermon, I need more time. And I'm a bit stuck because if I give more time to preparation, I won't be able to pray. And if I give time to pray, I won't have much time for preparation. So what do I do? Prepare what to say or pray? I can tell you every time. Forget my preparation, let me pray. More gets done through prayer than by preparation. God will give you what to say. When you're in trouble and you're you're saying, shall I pray or shall I do this? Well, let prayer be number one. You do the washing up afterwards. Find time to pray. There's only one thing that I admire in Islam. I don't admire Islam very much. But there is one thing I admire in Islam. Have you ever been on a, on a Muslim plane? You travel by Saudi Airlines or Qatar Airlines. And some guy gets up and he starts fiddling with his watch. And he's working out where Mecca is. And in the middle of the plane, he gets down on his knees on the plane and he starts praying to Allah somewhere in, where he thinks, hoping he's praying in the right direction. I have to say, that's not a bad idea. I wish I could do that one. It's now time to pray. I don't care what people think about me. It's now time to pray. That's the only thing I admire in Islam. Mind you, they don't get through because they don't pray in the name of Jesus. We, when we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus. But I wish we had a tiny bit of their discipline. I wish we were as committed that when we get to prayer time we pray, no matter what. I admire them a little bit at that point, even if at no other point. Do you pray? Do you, do you put down your diary times when you must pray? When your phone rings and uh, your wife answers the phone and says, can I speak to Pastor so-and-so? Say, no, no, sorry, he's got an appointment, he's busy. But the appointment was with God and he's busy with God. Do you book times in your diary? You know, they, on that day I'm praying. Anybody wants you for supper? No, no, I'm busy that day. Find time to pray. A little bit every day. One day a week when you give a bit more. Maybe Saturday morning or Friday evening or, or whenever. One time of the year when maybe you disappear and go off somewhere and pray for a week. Christmas time maybe or July holidays or whenever. Do you find time to pray? You're a man or a woman of prayer. When you do that, you make a discovery. You make an amazing, amazing, amazing discovery. You should have known, you should have known already. Don't know why you took so long to discover it. What you discover is the Lord answers prayer. It's the greatest discovery of your life. You pray about some little thing and immediately it answers. Why didn't I pray about that before? You discover, you discover that our God is a God who hears prayer. He answers prayer. Sometimes you pray about things and, and you, you hardly, you think, well, that's too small. I don't think the Lord will bother with that. But He answers you. He answers you above all that you ask or think. Sometimes, sometimes He answers before you pray. You're about to pray something. The desk you're about to pray, the answer comes. You haven't even prayed yet. There's a verse in the Bible that says, I will hear them before they pray. I'll answer them before they call. You didn't even, you, you're just about to pray, and the Lord saw what was coming and answered you even before you said it. God answers prayer, little things, big things. You've got some wandering child, some teenager, 
who's far from God. Don't spend all your time nagging him, nagging her, trying to drag him to church. Pray. And see what God will do. Just pray that something will happen in their life that brings them in contact with the gospel. Pray. You've got a bad marriage. Pray. You're unhealthy. Pray. You're worried about your work. Pray. You need some more cash in your life. Pray. On promotion, pray. God's the best promoter there is. When, when I quit being a lecturer at Evening Home College in Zambia, became a preacher, my salary went down by about 80%. But I can tell you, I'm happier than I ever was under the Zambian government. And God's more nice to me than the Zambian government ever was. When, when you're under the Lord, you find he, he just knows what to, what to give, what to withhold. He, he's, the, he's the perfect boss. He's the perfect employer. Just, just learn to be under him. Take all your needs to him. You need, you need a bit of something extra, go to him, he'll give it to you. You need it, he'll give it to you. And I don't know why we're so slow to learn this. We somehow are full of unbelief. We think, oh yeah, prayer, we don't take much notice. Have you made the biggest discovery that you ever make in your life? That God is a God who answers prayer. Go to him. You say, well, is it totally unconditional? No, a few conditions, but they're easy ones. Just forgive everybody everywhere. We'll come, that's in this, in this Lord's Prayer as well. Forgive everybody everywhere. Come in faith, believe in God, get your life right, be absolutely honest and pray. And I promise you, God will heal you. We'll discover that God is a God who answers prayer. And let this Lord, Lord's Prayer inform you and educate you and mould your thinking and start praying for God's glory, God's kingdom, God's will, your needs, your past, your future, your everything, and God will hear you. Let's stand and we'll pray and take a break for 10 minutes. Our Father, I pray that we may learn to pray. And we all know, Lord, how, how much Satan attacks us at this point, how much we are dragged down, how we have to fight through a battle of inertia and slowness and coldness. Teach us by faith to go into your presence in the name of Jesus. And no matter what we feel like to pray and deal with you and look upon your face, and have dealings with you. Please teach us to live in such a way because we know it will transform our lives. Come, bless us, teach us as a fellowship, as a church, as churches, as individuals. Teach us to be men and women of prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.